us today. I sense your moving. I'm not one that puts a premium on feelings, Lord, but I feel something. And I believe you want to meet with us in a special and precious way today. Lord, please don't let me get in the way of that. May I be completely in harmony and unity with your will for this morning. Help me as I preach. Bless your word. And do whatever you want to do in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen and amen. Again, we're in Romans chapter 2 this morning. Romans chapter 2. Oh, don't you love the book of Romans? I love it. I think that the Lord has given me some guidance on to when I'm going to attempt to preach through the book of Romans. Right now, we are scheduled for 2047. (laughs) But I love it. Romans chapters 1 through 3 concern themselves with the glaring truth that we're all guilty before our holy God. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a moralizer, whether you're a hypocrite, whether you're a reprobate, religious, non-religious, these chapters basically sum up, none of that matters. All of us are guilty. Apart from Christ, we're guilty before our holy and righteous God. We began Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 with the word therefore, and it's important that we use that word to see our context. Therefore harkens back to the second half of chapter 1, but specifically verse number 18, which says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against all men. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest thus the same things. We better be real careful that we don't start thinking of ourselves as because we're religious or because we're clean cut or whatever, we're better than somebody else. Paul knocks that in the head right there. We're all guilty before God apart from Jesus Christ, no matter what your religious countenance is. I'm especially captured by Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. And especially the last eight words. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee repentance. There's two perspectives that we need to consider here. Both of them are serious, and I believe both of them are needed for this hour. And so if I were to title the message, it'd be titled this, Eight Powerful Words. Eight Powerful Words. First of all, these eight powerful words are powerful for the sinner. If you're somebody who has never been saved, whether you're here in this room watching online, if you're somebody who has never been saved, now let me define our terms. 
I do not mean you're a member of a church. I do not mean that you're religious. I do not mean that you fancy yourself a good person or you're conservative versus liberal or anything like that. If there's never been a time that you've realized you were a sinner in need of a Savior and called upon Jesus Christ alone to be your Savior, then this is for you. These eight words can change your life now and for eternity. We hear a lot of expressions regarding when somebody comes to Christ. I found Jesus. I was seeking. I was searching. I decided enough was enough. I turned over a new leaf. Well, let me give you the truth. I understand what people mean when they say that, but let me give you the truth. Here's the truth. All of us, if you're not saved, this is true right now. You are. And if you are saved, this was once true of you. We are all depraved sinners who want nothing to do with God. Now, what I'm about to say is going to make some of you think that I have wandered into the world of Reformed theology. Preacher is a Calvinist. I am not. Now, I will say this. Those that we call Calvinists or Reformed theology, they make much of the Word of God, and they make much of the sovereignty of God, and I agree with both of those things. God is sovereign, and His Word should be made much of. Okay. Amen. We disagree on some other finer points, particularly of salvation, and in some cases, end times prophecy, and some other stuff. But they love the Lord. I know many of them. They love the Lord, and they're interested in being true to His Word. But the fact is, they're not wrong if they advance the view that we're all depraved that want nothing to do with God. Psalm 14, verse number 2, I can prove it to you. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now, if you, if you did a little bit of legwork and looked up the Greek word for none, you know what it means? None. Now, again, I, I may sound like I'm reformed. I'm not. But the truth is, God initiated the plan of salvation, and it's God who approaches us, not us who approaches God. You say, well, prove it. What did Jesus say? No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Preacher, are we about to go Calvinist? We are not. Because let me tell you where we disagree. Where we disagree is, while I believe that God initiated salvation and God is the one that calls to us, where we disagree is I believe he's called everybody. I don't believe he's called just the elect and elected some for for salvation and some for damnation. For God so loved the world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't believe that grace is irresistible. You do have have a choice. He can call you, but that doesn't mean you're going to answer. See, 
Now, here's the question. What motivates us, or rather, what motivates God to call us to repentance for salvation? You're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. What in the world would God be motivated to call upon you to be saved, to call upon you to repent for salvation? Why would he do that? Back to the verse, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You know, another word that's translated out of this same word is the word kind, the kindness of God. This is not going to help you in the matter of your self-esteem, but it's true nonetheless. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. And if there were no me, it wouldn't diminish God, not one speck. Anything that God does for us is not because we've earned it. It's because of his kindness. It's because of his goodness. It's because of his grace. So, friend, if you've never trusted Christ, hear me well. If you hear the gospel today and refuse God's offer of salvation, your refusal is an insult to the goodness of kindness, and patience of God. The God who would be right to have cast us into hell, but rather chooses to invite us into his family. What leads us to repentance for salvation? Nothing but the goodness of God. And if you're here and you've never been saved, that's your so what. I'll just tell you that right now. That's your so what. If you go to hell, it will be in spite of the goodness of God. But there's a second perspective that I want to spend a little more time on this morning. These are powerful words, not just for the sinner. These are powerful words for the saint. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And what we want to do from here on out is we want to look at the three words. Three words that we want to look at, okay? Number one, the word goodness. The suffix ness, N-E-S-S, means a state, quality, or condition of. When God is said to possess goodness, it goes well beyond the amount of good that he possesses. It speaks to his identity. God doesn't just do good. God is good. He is good incarnate. He's not just possessing good qualities. Now listen carefully to this. Too often, believers view God as possessing good instead of embodying good. And there's a difference. Can I put it a different way? To the average believer, God is not goodness. He's good-ish. Think about it. He's not goodness. He's good-ish. We can go no further than to believe God, if so inclined, will do some good things for us instead of the fact that he is inherently good, the living incarnation of good. Let me illustrate it to you this way. If you're a coach, which player would you rather have? Somebody who at times can do athletic things or someone who is 
athletic. What would you rather have? Somebody who is athletic. If, if you're a voter, <laughs> would you rather vote for somebody who at times can do wise things, or would you rather have somebody who is wise? See. If you're an employer, do you want to hire the person that can at times seem competent, or do you want to hire the one who is competent? If you're looking for a potential mate, do you want the one that at times manages to do good things for me, or do you want the one that is good? And so we tie that into what we're talking about here. God doesn't just do good. He is good. And he can do nothing less. He's incapable of anything less or anything other than absolute, unadulterated perfection. When I when I bent my knees to God, I didn't choose a God who does good every once in a while. I didn't just choose a God who does good. I worship the living God who is good, who can do nothing but good, who always gets it right. And when we understand that truth, it changes everything. And that takes us to the next word. The goodness of God leadeth us. If one is leading, is he in front or behind? He's in front, right? That's what leading means. He's in front. And if the goodness of God is leading us anywhere, which is in front in our lives? His goodness or us? Andy, what do you mean? Listen. If the goodness of God is leading us, which will encounter our trials first? God and his goodness or us. All right, Andy, what, what are you saying? We are prone to view God's goodness as reactionary. It swoops in when something bad happens. We've just encountered something. So God's goodness swoops in and helps us. But that's not what happens at all. I assert that if goodness is leading us, it can be found before us, addressing that which we have not even yet experienced. If goodness is reactionary, then that would mean the events of our lives can circumvent the goodness of God. But I don't believe that's how it works at all. When you walk into a trial or a difficulty, if you're paying attention, you'll find God's goodness is already there. I realize that many of you have been through things far worse than me and my wife have. And I don't ever want to minimize that. But I'd have to say that the toughest thing that we've ever experienced is, is three miscarriages. The, the deaths that we've experienced in our family other than those have been largely expected. Brother Burgett, we, we're sad that he went to heaven, but 
we kind of knew that was coming. My father, we had time to address, you know, those kind of things. And other than that, we've had a very blessed life and not had to deal with a whole lot of that. But, but just using the first, the first one as, as an example. As it became evident to us what was happening, at no point did God's goodness swoop in and fix anything. What we found through all the tears and all the difficulty and all the sadness and all the mourning, what we found is that as we faced that trial, God's goodness was already there. There's a couple ways to look at that. Andy, are you saying that God in his goodness facilitated their deaths? Maybe. What? Maybe. Can I give you something that I've thought about frequently? If God in his foreknowledge knew that those three precious children would never receive him as their Savior, and he took them from the womb to ensure their place with us in heaven, that is an act of gracious goodness for which I am thankful. I don't know that, but I've wondered that. But even if that's not the case, even if that's not the case, in allowing their deaths, God still demonstrated his goodness. How? Here's the answer. You ready? I don't know. And I don't have to know. And that's part of the goodness in and of itself. I only know that that event did not circumvent his goodness because it was already there waiting for it. God didn't react to anything. He was there in the midst of it. Andy, I don't know if that's biblical. And we know all things work together for what? That doesn't sound like reactionary to me. That sounds like providence, that God's in the midst of it. Andy, you don't know what I've been through. You've not buried a spouse. You've not buried a child that you've had in your arms. You've not, I know that, I know that, I know that, and I'm not trying to minimize any of that, but I'm telling you it doesn't make it any less true. Whatever you face, God, by virtue of his very nature, his goodness is already there. He doesn't react to anything he only provides. Fanny Crosby had it right. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. The goodness of God leadeth thee, now here's the tough one, to repentance. The word repentance means a change of mind resulting in a change of action is how we often hear it. It simply actually just means to turn or to pivot, just to turn. And when we really see God in his goodness, our prevailing response is not going to initially be what we might think it would be. You would think that when you see God in his goodness, that your prevailing response is going to be happiness. Wow. Maybe praise and gratitude. 
perhaps relief. And those are all legitimate. But I found in my own life and I found in the Bible that the prevailing response to really seeing the goodness of God is none of those things, not initially. You know what it is? It's repentance. I had a situation not so very long ago. Sometimes if you've done something for a while, it doesn't mean that you've, had, you've got some kind of special insight, something spooky or anything, but you've done something long enough, you can kind of see, you can kind of see how moves start moving on the chessboard. You kind of see how this domino is going to hit this domino, and this domino is going to hit this domino, and you're just like, uh, I don't like where this is headed. And I had a situation like that. Once again, I don't claim to have any special insight, but I've been doing this long enough, and I've seen, I've, I've been a student of human nature, and I've seen things happen in certain ways that are pretty predictable. And I saw a situation rise up, and I saw one domino hitting another domino, and another domino hitting another domino. It, listen, it didn't involve any sin on my part or anything like that, but I, as I watched the dominoes in my mind fall, I started feeling like, man, if this goes the way I fear it will, I'm in real trouble. If this goes the way I fear it will, I may be working on my resume. You get nothing disqualifying or anything. Let me just make that clear. I just saw a situation developing, and I was very, very concerned. And you know what I did? I worried. You know that worrying's a sin, right? The Bible, is, it's an imperative. Be careful, be anxious for nothing. That's an imperative. And so when you go against that, that's a sin. Easy preaching, hard living. Lord, this thing's going to get bad. Just help me, Lord. And then I watched in utter amazement as God in his goodness stepped in proactively, providentially, and none of those dominoes fell. So clearly was the goodness of God at work that none of you, including my wife, have any idea what I'm talking about. Only me and God. And I watched in utter amazement in utter amazement as God supernaturally protected everything. And do you know what my initial response was? It was not happiness. It was not relief, not initially. Oh, that came. It was not even gratitude. That's a close second. You know what it was? Oh, God. Forgive me that I didn't trust you. God, forgive me that I didn't put this in your hands sooner. God, and I just started repenting of all the ways that I did or potentially could have mishandled that apart from his hand. My first response was one of repentance. Well, Andy, that might be you, but I don't know if that's true biblically. Go to Isaiah 6. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Does that sound like that's related to goodness? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved with the voice of him that cried in the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah got an eye full of the goodness of God. And what was his response? Praise the Lord. What was his response? I'm happy in the Lord. What was his response? Oh, I love you, Lord. No, his immediate response was, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. (laughs) What led him to that condition? For mine eyes have seen the king. I'm telling you, I know from where I speak, you really get a glimpse of the king of glory and his goodness. Your first inclination is not to get high. Your first inclination is to get low. So what? Now, we've already told you, if you're here and you've never been saved, your so what is clear. You need to be saved. The goodness of God calls you, leads you to repentance. Be saved today because to to refuse Jesus is to really just insult him and spit in the face of his goodness and his kindness and all that he offers you. That's your so what. But how about those of us that are saved? What's our so what? First of all, stop seeing God as good-ish. And see him as goodness. Stop seeing him as a God that occasionally does things good and start seeing him as the God who is good. And stop seeing goodness as reactionary that comes after you need it. No, it's goodness that's already there, ready for you as you'll need it. But then in the matter of repentance, I am especially concerned in my own life and the life of others when someone says they've been living for the Lord for years And these years are characterized by happiness, relief, gratitude, praise. But in all those years, it seems they never repent of anything. I'm not asking you when's the last time you praised him. I'm not asking you when's the last time you thanked him. I'm not asking you when the last time you were happy in the Lord, and I'm not asking you the last time you felt relief about something you handled. I'm asking you when's the last time that God in his goodness revealed something in your life and you asked him to forgive you for it, that you repented. Because we will never, never, never take a step forward for God if we have not first repented. Let's rise up and build. I'm for that. But what had to happen first? Repentance.
How do I get there, Andy? I'll tell you how you get there. Every head bowed and every eye closed right now. I want you to take a moment. And I want you to meditate on the goodness of God.